Well, next time I'm up that way, I'll I'll add on an extra day. Y'all have to take me out, take me fishing or something. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. We're a podcast that explores the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically. Or as we used to say back in old seminary days, theological reflection. Today on the podcast, yes, it's been a while, so to say today on the podcast means, oh, and now on the podcast, all these uh, weeks later, I have an opportunity to offer you uh, a conversation that uh, was had around the subject of race and faith. Jamar Tisby, in his book, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism, gets to uh, the chapter just before the conclusion and offers some offers some suggestions. What can we do? What should we do? And, and essentially, he offers a, a list across a, a range of particular um, targets and essentially says, do something. Uh, it reminded me of what I have heard and repeated here on the podcast before from uh, Dr. Holmes, who in a, a small uh, conference uh, replied to a request that she come tell a pastor's church about her experience in the civil rights movement, what she had shared with us, in which she responded by saying, you tell your people. It is really what we find in uh, Tisby's book. And no, hopefully, maybe I can get uh, Jamar to come on the podcast and we can have a conversation about his book. But this is really an attempt to do something. It is uh, an attempt to have a conversation at an important time in our culture and in the life of the church to talk about the issues of race and faith. The conversation was stirred by a friend of mine, Scott Curry, who has been on the podcast. We talked about the book of Job, actually, uh, with Scott. He's an Old Testament PhD guy and uh, pastor at the First Baptist Church, Groover, for, I think, at least 20 years. Known him for a long time, and uh, don't hold it against him. And and we he and I were talking about, you know, it'd be really good to have a conversation. And uh, as schedules and events worked out, Scott wasn't able to be on this podcast, but he is one of the motivations and motivators behind it. So today on the podcast, uh, I'm glad to have uh, Dwight McKissick, who's the founding pastor of the Cornerstone Baptist Church in Arlington, Texas. He founded the church in 1983. It's grown to over 3,000 in membership, and they have about 1,100 in weekly attendance. Uh, Dwight uh, and I and a group met probably uh, in the early 2000s, and he has um, been an advocate for uh, race in the Southern Baptist Convention. As a black pastor, an African-American pastor, he has pushed us to make good on our resolution from 1995 to do better. Uh, One, to uh, confess uh, the error of our history in support of racism and slavery, and and now to make good on that. And he has been uh, uh, um, a good voice, a helpful voice, a healthy voice in that mix. Also on the podcast in this conversation is is my friend uh, George Young Sr. Now, George and I have had conversations about this subject before, but my technology uh, didn't work well, and so I really produced a blog post about our conversation. Oh, it's been 
a few years ago. Well, one of our uh, potential guests was not able to make it, and so I, I contacted George uh, and asked him if he would be on. He is the retired pastor of the Holy Temple Baptist Church in Oklahoma City, now Senator George Young Sr. And then uh, since Scott uh, came down with a terrible migraine headache the, the day of our recording, I was able to reach out to my middle brother, Paul Littleton, and invite him to be on uh, and have this conversation with us. Paul has uh, pastored for about 20 years. He also um, knows Dwight, and at a small conference Dwight held at his church some years ago, Paul was a presenter. So uh, given those uh, that, that background, that's kind of the uh, uh, cast of characters on this podcast. And we just have a, a conversation. The aim is to listen, that we would listen to the story of a couple of uh, men, pastors of faith, who grew up in uh, uh, the United States, uh, George in Memphis, and Dwight in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and talk about their experience in uh, a, a moment in time in history that is still having an impact today. And I think you'll find it uh, informational. I think you'll find it inspirational. I think you'll find it challenging. And hopefully we are going to be able to get the band back together and we'll include uh, Scott and James, too, that were originally going to be on this. And maybe the six of us can have uh, another ongoing conversation about, you know, the kind of thing of what's next. So that's a long intro, but I want you to know who's involved and who's here and kind of what's to set the stage. And so here's uh, our conversation on race and faith. I see, see y'all got Dr. George. I got, I got George on with me. Uh, Pastor McKissick, how are you? I am honored to meet you, sir, and I'm doing well. Very Likewise. Very great things about you. <laughs> Likewise. Yes, sir. Hey, George, uh, uh, I, I've got a surprise here. My friend Scott, who kind of initiated all this, came down with a migraine headache. Okay. So the other guy on the screen with the headphones on is my younger brother. Not youngest brother, but my younger brother. So, Paul, meet George. George, Hello, George. your other brother. Your other brother, the, Paul. Now, <laughs> now, Paul will tell you, like my youngest brother, that they're better looking than me. I really just tell him he's smarter than me. But uh, Well... That's, Better looking, smarter, younger. I mean, you know, it's kind of the whole package. Keep going. Huh? <laughs> yep. Now, 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 you two brothers see the burden that I bear. Uh, so, um, let me start by saying uh, thank you uh, for giving us your time, uh, Dwight and George and and Paul, for stepping in when Scott couldn't make it. Um, what what uh, I want to do is is. Uh, Scott had called me, and he had had a conversation with James Tudman, who is the uh, uh, dean of the Wayland uh, Baptist University campus in Amarillo. And uh, Scott teaches adjunctly there, and from time to time, James fills in for him. And they got to have some conversations in light of um, the most recent uh, 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 points of racial conflict, most notably the George Floyd killing and and then all that ensued out of that and scott was a little bit concerned there was he, he was hearing some things that he hadn't heard before he was unfamiliar he's been in 
uh, the Panhandle of Texas for about 20 years and at the First Baptist Church, Groover, Texas. And, um, and so one thing led to another, and, and he said, hey, you do this podcast and stuff. He said, how about we get together and have a conversation? And so that's kind of how this developed. And, and, uh, and so I'm just going to look at it as providence that it's the four of us and, uh, and feel uh, that I'm going to record this so Scott can watch it. And um, hopefully we'll cover some of the things that, you know, he had in mind. George and I have had a conversation like this, and my technology broke down terribly. So I had to kind of scratch it out in a, a long little written post what we talked about. So all my technology is good right now. So uh, I don't have any excuses. And uh, so really, um, I, I want this really to be more of, of a conversation. I don't have any written down list of questions. I hope that as we carry on, it might spur a comment, a remark. What uh, Scott and I wanted to do was just model listening because um, we think that there's a, a primary deficiency in listening. And, uh, um, and especially it's hard for people to listen who have decided already what the problem is. And I think that's, that's a, a hindrance. So I'm going to pull up something Scott sent and just kind of as a, as a, a conversation starter, um, point out a comment he made. He, he sent a quote to me um, from, I had it up here and it went away. Here we go. Um, he sent a, a quote that he found um, in uh Brene Brown's Braving the Wilderness. It's a quote from James Baldwin. And uh, he said, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once the hate is gone, they'll be forced to deal with the pain. And the reason that he had included that quote in the introduction that he was going to provide was that um, he sensed a great deal of pain that he wasn't necessarily completely familiar with. And so an anecdotal story he told me was, is that he went to school in Virginia. And uh, when he hit, I believe it was high school, he went to private school. And it dawned on him all these years later that the reason why he went to a private school in Virginia was so he didn't have to go to school with black folks. And but at it, growing up as a young child, he he that just wasn't you know, part of the realization of what was going on in that particular context. Um, if I could go on just real quick, personally, I grew up in Oklahoma City, and in 1972, Judge Luther Bohannon issued the, dese- uh, the integration decree or the desegregation uh, uh, decree. I was in the third grade. My kindergarten teacher was Miss Booker. Uh, my, my mom had never told me she was black. I know I didn't know what that meant. Third, by the time I was in the third grade, Miss Craig was my third grade teacher, and she was a black teacher. And I remember they did a trial day where they brought all the kids by bus over to Hawthorne Elementary School, and she was tickled death. And I remember it well. And I, I was attracted to her, so don't tell anybody. Um, but but uh, so in the fourth grade is when I began experiencing integration in Oklahoma City Public Schools. So my parents had a choice, and they, I think they might have been tempted because of friends 
but they had some temptations to move to one of the prevailing surrounding communities that were white flight communities. George knows well, that's virtually every community around the Oklahoma City core is a white flight city, or at least has, at least grew as a result of white flight if it wasn't, you know, by definition. And uh, I'm glad to this day that uh, I, I was emailing a friend back today. I, I, I was glad to, to this day that my parents didn't make that decision. So when I played freshman basketball and all my white friends said, you'll never make the team because you can't play with the brothers. I was one of three that did make the team started for coach Willie Kelly, who ended up over at Douglas. I don't know, George, if you know uh, Willie or not. Uh, and, and that was, that was my experience. So I don't have the same experience Scott had. So when he and I were talking, I was a little bit surprised at we're the virtually the same age. He might be as young as Paul. Um, and, and so that's a kind of a setup. And so um, Paul had the same experience. He had just been two years behind me in all of that uh, in Oklahoma City. And, uh, and so uh, that kind of sets the table for um, how could we talk about how that now it, here we are Golly, don't tell anybody how long I've been out of school, but um, how can we talk about how that, uh, how that still lingers? Because some people think that we're just past that. And, and nobody is really, I mean, I don't say nobody, that's too much of a generalization, but many people just think we should, what's the problem? What are the ways that still lingers? How can you help us here? And if you would, um, um, Dwight or, or, or George, you start, but tell just a little bit about where you grew up. Tell a bit about you, because some of the people and Scott won't won't know so much, and and help us out a little bit. You want me or Pat, it was Pastor McKissick? You, Whichever you, would like you, to go you first. First, you first. Come uh, on, George. A, age before beauty. I get it. I get it, <laughs> Pastor McKissick. I'll accept that. <laughs> you didn't have to say it. I'm just gonna go to put it out there. <laughs> well, uh, thank you, uh, Todd, um, uh, for allowing me to come on and be a part of this. It is. Uh, uh, let me be honest with you. It's been one of those things that I've been a part of, and probably Pastor McKissick has also for the last uh, three or four months. I'm probably averaging at least a couple of these a day or some type of conversation along these lines. And so um, I do thank you because I think this is part of the key. I think this is part of where we've come to that we've got to have these conversations. And I'm excited that we are having these conversations, as many of them as we are having, because I think it's important and significant that we at least started talking to each other about the problems that exist. Um, I, I like telling folks, I, I turned 66 this year and um, uh, I was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee, and I like to remind folks of uh, Memphis is on the Mississippi River, and uh, Mississippi Delta out there, and Memphis, all of that, it was great growing grounds for cotton, and cotton was one of the staples of the South, and that's why I grew up in an environment where I was surrounded by lots of African Americans. <laughs> there were a lot. Listen, it was a lot of black folks where I came from. I, I took a trip over to Johannesburg and got off the airplane and got an airport. And when I got off in there, I had some people with me who were just going, "Ooh, I've never seen this many." I thought I was back in Memphis, so you know, I, I'm just telling you. Yeah, there was a lot of black folk in Memphis, but they were there. Why? Because of slavery. They had been brought there. They had been brought there under the rest. And so I brought up, listen to your, your numbers. I, brought up, I went from kindergarten to the eighth grade in an all black school. 
all black school. I had one white teacher when I got in eighth grade. It was the first year I'd had a white teacher. I lived in a community that was all black. Um, my father was a stonemason. We argued out. He got maybe past the fourth grade. One of the sisters want to say he went to the eighth grade. We don't know. We didn't get that information. And my mother got her GED after my youngest brother's eighth, I'm the eighth child of nine children. And, uh, and so I was brought up, you can, you can, you can do the math yourself, born in 54, brought up in the 60s, early 60s. That's when I came into who I am. And so the civil rights movement, Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis. I was there during that period of time and uh, participated in the riots. And I tell my police friends, not a statute of limitations to run out, but I threw a few bricks and broke a few windows before mom and dad whooped me, you know, and told me don't go out anymore. And uh, I was 14 then, so you know they was they were tough. But um, grew up in that environment. Eighth grade, kindergarten to eighth grade, all black school. And um, in 1968, 69, I uh, went to a predominantly white school, integrated school, and uh, so that was my first experience drawn into it. And uh, you know, you're talking about 69, so let's, you know, 68, Dr. King was assassinated. I went in 69. I was at an all uh, a white school. And so uh, I always like to tell folk that I look back on my high school years and said, it was you know, pretty good years. How could you say that, you know, in the middle of integration? And Todd, it had a lot to do with what you just got through talking about. I thought, well, why do you think I probably had, because I don't look like it, I'm 5'10", so it doesn't look like it, but I had a great time in high school. And the reason was what Todd, you were just talking about, I played basketball and I was fairly good. And so I was sheltered from a lot of the stuff because I, you know, I was the basketball guy on campus at 510. You know, I was and uh, had a great time. It took me 10, 15 years after graduating high school to come to the realization that was that was almost debilitating to me when I really shook that shell of being protected and shielded uh, uh, from stuff that happened at school because of the privilege catch that, the privilege that I had as an athlete. And so, yeah, I saw the stuff and it came back to me. It was, it was, it was really disheartening. It was disappointing. It was frustrating to know that I'd gone through that. Yet I had seen it, heard it, felt it, but, uh, you know, you're in high school, so you're enjoying what you're enjoying. You, you let other folks live their lives, even though it was impacting me. And so, yeah, I was brought up in that environment. I was brought up uh, uh, during a time when things were trying to change. I can remember quite quickly, and then uh, you, you you have some context by now, but I can remember when I was 10 years old, a kid, 16-year-old black kid got beat. I could take you right now to Shelby Drive and Highway 78, which is Lamar Avenue in Memphis, Tennessee, but it turns to Highway 78 out, right outside of Memphis. Uh, Shelby Drive and uh, uh, Lamar Avenue or Highway 78 because um, the way I went to school every day for eight years is the way I went to school. I was a kid. I was 10 years old. I went to school. They they caught a kid, a black kid who had stolen a vehicle. First time I was born in 54. I think uh, Teal was killed in 55 if I'm right, but it was around that. I was around that time. Uh, so that didn't, you know, I, you knew about it, but I didn't. I was old enough at 10 years old to know. I didn't know this kid. 16-year-old black kid stole the car. Get, they ran from the police and they caught up with him at 78 in Shelby Drive. The Shelby County Police and the Memphis Police Department beat the kid to death. Beat the kid to death. Uh, not far from my house, 10 years old. That impacted me. 66 years later, I'm telling you, and it's hard for me now because it was frightening that that kid had been beat to death. Now, he was wrong. Obviously, he was still in the car. He broke the law. But did it take them 
to beat him to death. And so this, this you go from that point for me, and if you want to stop at George Floyd and all of those in between, you want to, we can talk about all of those since then that I've had to experience with no results, with no uh, closure, with no uh, nobody saying somebody was wrong for taking a life, that that was not the ultimate, uh, that was not the end, uh, res- that should have been the end result of any of those events, because most of them were people who did not have weapons, they were, but they, they had their own color. And so I, I was brought up in it. I was in Memphis when that was going on. And uh, so that's that's kind of the context in which I come out of now into this this moment and this time. And uh, I will add this and then I'll let you go is that, you know, but I have a lot of hope. Now I'll talk about why I have a little more hope now than I did then or any other time prior to now and uh, share that with you. So that's kind of where, I, where I'm coming out of. Good, good. Dwight, tell us a little bit. Well, yeah, I'm, I was fascinated by uh, George's story. Uh, I was born and raised about a hundred or so miles south of Memphis and Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, I was born in 56, so two years later than he was. So we, a lot of his story resonated um, with me. And um, I don't know. Uh, I, I would say a, a strong, healthy Black family. I heard him refer to a father. It sort of insulated you from the obvious racism that was around you. You did see it. You you had a different library, much smaller. Um, you went to school. The textbooks they gave you were already used. And sometimes the, the binders on the books were torn and four or five names were already written in the opening uh, index page of the book. And I remember asking the teacher one day, who are these names? And she said they were the, the white students used the book first, and when they were outdated or they got a new set of books, we got what was left over. And I remember that feeling of sitting in class today that we're actually studying some outdated books or books that white people no longer wanted. That that left a certain feeling with you, even in the fifth grade. I know what it's like, and I'm sure Brother George does too to go up to a water fountain that says colored and a Negro. I know what it's like to go to a doctor's office. I didn't read this in a book, and and to sit in a section that's much smaller, not as chairs were not as nice and carpet and what have you. You kind of peep over to where the white people sat in the waiting room, plush chairs, carpet, much larger uh, area. I mean, you grow up seeing, experiencing this as a as a kid. I remember walking to the neighborhood store. One day, about a half a block down the street, uh, owned by a white couple named the Sofars. And the, the 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 first and only time, actually, I can say I've been called the N-word to my face. I'm like in the fifth grade or so, walking to the neighborhood store, and a, a, a young white kid that looked like he might have been three years old, four years old at the most, he was seated in the car alone. An unusual sight of a white kid seated in a car alone, maybe on a spring day or so, window down. And um, so I was kind of fastened my eyes on him because I think, number one, just the unusualness of that sight of seeing him. And then um, secondly, we sort of locked eyes on each other as I walked in the store, and he was sort of puzzled at me 
probably looking at a black kid, and I'm puzzling him, like, why are you here? And the closer I got to his that car, I heard him say, nigger. And that was the first time it was kind of shocking to hear that word from a kid. And of course, he he that was learned behavior. Um somebody taught him uh that, but I knew from observation of training, I could not challenge that and didn't challenge that. I just went in the store and purchased some stuff and went on. Um, and I remember walking across a um, a private club, a boys club, girl club. Uh, when uh, Brother George probably remember this, two years before forced integration, at least in Pine Bluff, I heard you talk about third grade, 72. I think I was in the eighth or ninth grade in 1970. Um, but integration was was mandated by courts. You called the judge's name in Oklahoma City who mandated integration. Um, but they had what was called in Pine Bluff, at least, uh, freedom of choice. It's like six to eight to seven. And you could choose, white kids could choose if they desired to attend an all-black school. Black kids could choose to attend an all-white school. And my mother thought it would be best for her kids to go to the predominantly white schools, learn the culture, the language, the, you got to work in a white man's world one day. She saw it as an advantageous, uh, knowing that you might experience some sense of rejection and some social issues at the white school that you wouldn't at the black school, but she still thought it was, the upside was greater than the downside. And I must admit, it, those two years were uh, good experiences. You end up, you play football, you showering and uh, white guy, football player, see you combing your head. He won't know why you're combing it because it's not going to get straight. It's not. It's never going to straighten out. So he saw it as futile running a comb through your hair. You know, uh, lots of experiences uh, uh, like that, that as you got to learn each other's uh, uh, culture. But uh, I probably the reason I got a relationship with uh, Todd and Paul now, in some ways I learned, it. mama was right. You learn to socialize with white people. And that's, that, that's a character trait or skill set that stays with you the rest of your life. And I have, um, like the rest of us, my circle of uh, white friends. You're right, Brother George. George Floyd's death has created a lot of calls. Just checking on me and Zoom opportunities and on and on. And I was on a uh, group line the other day, only one white guy on that, Dr. Uh, Daryl Elders used to be a dean of education in Southwest many years ago, and we were on the same church staff for a show while. I told him the only challenge of being black after uh, George Floyd is you, a lot of times, you're the only black friend that a lot of white guys got. Right. So that, that, that right. compounds your workload and <laughs> <Right>. just <laughs> responded to them. Um, but walking across the, they invited me to observe their football. They had private football games and um, and the white kid says after school one day, come and watch us. Just come out and hang out at practice. I did. And I never will forget walking across that stadium. I heard a speaker on a loud voice saying, if you don't have a 1968 Pine Bluff Boys Club pass, please remove yourself from the, uh, whatever the, the facility was called. I think it was called a Pine Bluff Boys Club or something another. And I knew I didn't have a pass. The, the people knew I didn't have a pass. Basically, that was their way of saying, 
black boy, get off the field, get out of here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I could go, I know what it's like to be go to the movie downtown and have to sit in a balcony uh, at the movie theater and watch white kids down on the uh, uh, floor. I could go on and on and just uh, having uh, lived and experienced uh, segregation uh, and, and just knowing your place when you go to the county fair, you had to get white people first in line. You, you just kind of, you learn to accommodate a culture where it was understood you were second class, you were in inferior and uh, what have you. But a, a lot of those things prepared me to be uh, who I am today. And But if you could just make it home, you, that's where you got that love and that reinforcement. And I recognized that my parents took the brunt of the, uh, the racism and segregation, which made it, um, you know, the family experience was so strong that it sort of mitigated the pressures you experience on outside as a result of racism and segregation. So that's a pretty much uh, an introduction to uh, the context in which I grew up in and formed some thinking about racial matters. So, and Paul, if you think of something, just just jump in. But uh, so uh, before we get to the piece, I, I, I well, let I, me stop. I'm, yeah. I'm a little bit jealous of uh, George mm-hmm. because he he mentioned having being in Memphis when Martin Luther King was shot and killed, and we were watching it on TV. Of course, I'd heard the name Martin Luther King. I'm like maybe 11 or 12. I was born in 56, so he said he was 14, I was 12. Right. But I didn't understand the magnitude of the influence and the hope that Black people had placed in Martin Luther King until that very night. The very first time I ever saw my daddy shed tears in his life was the night Martin Luther King was shot. Mm. And, and I was looking at my dad crying. I was looking at TV, looking at my dad, looking at TV. I said, I don't know who this king man is, but for, for him to have my daddy crying, he is somebody. And my dad is hope. I mean, that was the first time I realized the magnitude of this man called Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And of course, I'm kind of jealous again, uh, George. Uh, um, I didn't get a chance to throw any rocks or bricks or anything. <laughs> But, but, but I'm glad you got that on your resume. Yeah, I got it on my resume. Yeah. All right. All right. Let me, let me, Todd, let me jump back in because I, yeah, I want yeah, to dude. say that that is uh, listening to Pastor McKissick. I'm telling man, listening to you is like a replay of my life because of our age uh, similarity. Like I said, I'm right. a couple years older than you, but you, he, he, listen, if you hear what I said and, and hear what he said, there is, there is a direct, he was in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, which is, you know, pretty, you know, what you are, you know, that's in Arkansas, Memphis, West Memphis, and then, you know, right. yeah, a little further up. I, I, it is amazing to hear that because of the similarities of the things that occurred that brought us to this moment. And so we both were brought up in a time when he's right, our parents had taken the, the brunt of that thing, but we were ushered into this new moment, this new time. And it was really, it was really a, a daunting period uh, looking back on it. When when Dr. King was assassinated, my mother called me to the back door because I was out on close to a field or something. I was playing ball or something. And she called me and my mother was crying. 
But I was old enough to know who Dr. King was. But again, as you said, never knew the magnitude of his life. But when I saw her crying, I knew then, because I thought, because there's nine of us, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, somebody. Oh, man, it's nine of, my, it's nine of us. Yeah, I'll make you know, so you know, I'll take care of it. Yeah, so so yeah, it, it is amazing to hear that 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 that's exactly right. And not be a couple of years older, I did know who he was, was aware of it, you know. And uh, but when I was throwing those those bricks and throwing those rocks, it wasn't because I was out there with the garbage people who were saying I, I am a man. I was out there because that's what the other young black guys were doing expressing themselves and I wanted to be part of that group to express myself. So and I've been two years and I've been two years old, I'd probably been out there too, but I was, I was just <laughs> I still got a whooping. So yeah. <laughs> oh trust me, I would have got wet. Trust yeah. me. Well and, and and so now here we are in in this moment and and helping um folks understand that um like a virus that hasn't just gone away. There have been lingering um, consequences, experiences that for some reason is not on the forefront of our uh, social awareness. So that when these things happen, it seems like extra hard work for those of us who want to advocate for uh, uh, uh um, a better understanding of our racial relationships. And for you all who feel phone calls and zoom calls constantly for the last three or four months. So what are some of the, what are some of the things you could remind us here? Here's some things that linger. Um, you know, po- folks, I, I gotta be honest. I, I mean, I, I heard the phrase redlining, but I didn't necessarily understand it all. I'm reading Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise. And it's not an exhaustive history, but to see some of the detailed ways to circumvent the laws that actually were supposed to overcome redlining that actually didn't because they got wired into the uh, real estate system so that now uh, a real estate agent or broker could actually do the redlining without the legitimacy of the law. I bet some of that still goes on. Can I jump in there? Because I yeah. think you're touching on something that's very important, and I, and I hope uh, Pastor McKissick would, would, would join it. This, this is, you're right, from the very beginning, from when they brought the, the first group of slaves on here, you had a problem because there were people who were saying audibly, well, people could hear, that's not right. <laughs> they, they, those are human beings. So get, get away from this idea that that was just the time, that was just what people did. No, there were people saying, the Quakers were not the only ones. People were saying over and over again, that is not right. Those are human beings. Y'all are mistreating them. You shouldn't do that. Up until the time of the Declaration, and the Constitution, well, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, and I said parenthetically, women are created equal. Listen, that was a lie when they wrote it. They knew it was a lie. They were writing lies. And so from that point on, what we've been trying to do is to try to put some truth into that. But it was it was wrong. And it has gone. It has gone now from that to this whole idea of 
the, the nation was built on uh, this, this tier of these people are less than you. Everything about America was these people are less than you. And so you want to come up to talk about after World War One, World War II, when the VA had the GI Bill, they would give blacks money and would not allow them to buy homes. You're right, redlining in certain areas. What is the one thing that gives us the appreciation, any family in America, appreciation, appreciated value is their home. That's why we couldn't do some of the things. Not only did we not get homes that appreciated value, we got homes that depreciated in value. And those were the homes that were torn down to make room for some other stuff. And so it has always been a problem. And, and, and I will get to this because out of the context you get, you know, I, I, listen, Pastor McKissick, you know this. When I was growing up, I watched TV, we had TV, you know, and I never remember a black hero. I never remember. I, we had some black city council folks in Memphis, a couple of them, but I never remember them. You would have shows. This is this is the, the my favorite example is this. This is how horrendous this thing is. You would take a white baby that was born in England, got in a crash in an airplane in Africa, raised by monkeys, and this white individual becomes the greatest person in all of Africa. And you would have shows, the, the movies would show him defeating the whole tribe of Africans by himself. He could talk to the animals. These Africans been there all their life and they, they can't have a conversation with an elephant, but he could talk to the animals, make the animals do what they want. And, and listen, you had black folks cheering for Tarzan. That's how hideous this thing is. That's how awful it is. That's how bad it is. And so you're building on that. You, I like to say, anyone who's born in America, you, me, everybody else, I'm going to you have you have some racial bias tendencies within your psyche. You just you, you. I don't see color. I want you to see color. I'm black, and I've been black all my life. And being black means something to me. And so, yes, yes, there is a problem. We're just getting around to having these conversations, to have to, to for George Young to be able to voice his opinion. That, you know, now, I, you know, the whole Tarzan thing is, or, or Stephanie Fletcher, all of those things. Now, you know, it's, it, it's just horrendous to look at that stuff and see how it was impacting the minds of young children, of young people in such a horrendous, black and white. And so that's the problem. That's what we're fighting for. You So you said, but when it comes to you, poverty is a problem, we say poverty. Well, poverty was created and not only not only was it, it, it was created by the government. It was created by law. Those things, FHA was a part of redlining. The Veterans Administration was a part of redlining. Not only those homeowners who had the agreements that if you sold to a black person, you would lose your home. I mean, the government was, the banks would not loan you money to buy a home in a certain area. And what I'm saying, so now, at this moment, right now, there are families that are impacted by those decisions that were made 100, 200, 300, 400 years ago, and you're not going to change that overnight. But that is the problem. So all of us who are living right now, breathing air, we are part of that problem because we are either the beneficiaries or the recipients of some stuff that has caused us to have to either fight through or cause us to understand that we are not where we would like to be, and it's not fully all our fault. Brother George, I, I think that is, uh, I, I mean, I'd never thought of it that way. The stories that we tell, 
mm. uh, like the Tarzan story, because those stories shape how we view our world and what the world is like and, and, and often what the world should be like. And so it's not just saying this is the way things are, because obviously the story of Tarzan is not a true story about the way anything is. But it, it's, it's telling a story about, well, maybe this is the way things should be or the way that we should view the world. And, and there is a lot of power in that. My wife and I, um, I guess it must be probably around 15 years ago now, uh, we adopted a black boy out of uh, foster care here in Oklahoma. And uh, the, the primary issue with his, his family growing up was neglect. Uh, I mean, it wasn't uncommon for him to spend the night in, on a park bench um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma Ooh. in the 1990s, uh, 1980s. No, 90s, he wasn't born till 95. But um, so, uh, you know, we, it, he had come and he had lived in our home for a couple of years. And um, then when he turned 18, he, he, in many ways, returned to the kind of life that he had grown up in those first 10 years of his life. And, and I've often wondered if the, the way that his view of the world was shaped mm. in those first 10 years of his life, if he just couldn't couldn't think of his life being different because in his mind, this is the way the world works. And I think on our side of it, um, I've been having some conversations with some uh, white friends about, you know, how, how do we do better uh, and, and learn better? And, and some of the pushback that I've gotten uh, from some of my friends in those conversations is that, well, we've already fixed all that. The, uh, the Civil Rights Act fixed all that. There, there aren't laws anymore that disadvantage one group over another. And uh, one of the fellows grew up kind of poor, and he said, you know, I, I mean, hey, I'm not uh, a stranger to poverty, but you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and if people are disadvantaged, it's because they're not pulling themselves up by their bootstraps hard enough. And, and it's more than that, isn't it? Yeah, some of them have boots. So Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, no, but, but you're absolutely right, is that it is, it is a system that has been created that we're fighting. And uh, it, it's just difficult, all of the things that, that work against it. You know, but, but your friend who says he was brought up in poverty, when he walks into uh, Von Meyer here in, in Oklahoma City at Quail Springs Mall, uh, Pastor McKissick, when he walks in there, nobody says anything or looks at him any different. But when I walk in there, you know, somebody may keep an eye on me just because of my color, just because they think I might. That think I might because of how things have have uh, been described to them. He might be somebody who might steal more so than your friend that's white and poor. But that's that's the situation systemically that we have created in this country. And so we got to have this conversation. You got to have it's not over. The things, the decisions we made 100, 200, 300, 400 years ago are impacting people today. And we need to realize that we need some changes to make things at least better, if not right. Yeah, Dwight, um, you, you this might be a good place. You, you have worked hard 
uh, in our SBC circles to help those who with ears to hear that we are talking about systems thinking and everybody's always pushing back to on you. I watch it all the time. Mm. It's a matter of the heart. It's an individual thing. And what George has just described is certainly we think every individual heart has a role to play in uh, how we work together to, to, to make a, a world full of, of grace and, and equality. But when all we can think about is no, the only problem is the individual, like the, you just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Describe a little bit of, of, of maybe frustration or, or what's your tact or approach to try to help. Because I've watched people push back on you so hard when you start talking about the way, the way that uh, George has. And it, it's maddening to me. I have to throw my phone across the room um, uh, whenever I see that pop up because it's like you live in a system. It's called family. Now, the idea that you can't think of systems in relationship to these sorts of issues just seems baffling to me. Yeah, I, we're fighting a, I think is more of a spiritual warfare than a cultural, cultural war, particularly within a Southern Baptist Convention context or within an evangelical uh, context. Uh, I do recall when Dr. Richard Land uh, made the statement that A, racism is a myth, and B, that racial profiling was justified based on crime statistics and what have you. You gave a major pushback. That will will forever be the memory etched in my mind about who Todd Littleton was the day you stood on that floor and spoke as powerfully, passionately, and persuasively as you did. And uh, Brother George, what, what uh, gripped me, if, if, if Richard Land, who had a very powerful position, arguably one of the most visible positions in the SBC at that time, and maybe still, he was president of the Ethics Religious Liberty Commission, which get a lot of TV time, a lot of media attention. So uh, sometimes whoever holds that seat is very well known. Um, if what he said was true, and he said all the emails he got supported his position that uh, racial profiling was merited, justified, and and racism is a myth. Well, if if that's true, if a crime it hit me, if a crime is committed while the SBC session is in progress, somebody steal a purse, somebody uh, hit a woman on the head, or whatever the case, whatever crime that is. I become right. suspect number one right. based on Richard Land's right. uh, thinking. And that made, you know, that became alarming to me that solely based on race, I become the number one suspect. And here, and here within an evangelical, biblical, Christian context, it says we're all equal, we're all one, we treat everybody the same. Uh, that was hugely uh, problematic. And so this whole thing of systemic racism, you get a lot of pushback on that. You're right. Uh, they say it's individual hearts. But the, 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 the simplest definition or description of systemic injustice racism, I read the other day, I cannot remember the gentleman's name I read it, who originated this, but he says, uh, people like to do bad things. We all know that's true. 
He said, people like to do bad things together. We all know that's true. He says, and when people do bad things together, that becomes systemic. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> and that's kind of what racism is like. <laughs> Certain people want, like to be racist. Right. And a racist want to find another racist. And they tell each other they aren't racist, but they are. Right. And they want to enact that racism together that becomes systemic. So that is the what's happening in the nation today. And its roots, as Brother George says, go way back to the beginning of the time when the Quakers and the Sandy Creek Baptists other said the abolitionists will before this is wrong. I think Andrew Pendleton, I know his last name is Pendleton. I forgot the first name. He's one of those rare Baptists in 1800s that threw the red flag and said, time out. This is uh, not in keeping with scripture, on and on, uh, but yet they were largely ignored because it was an economic advantage to them. There you go. And of course, they had to deny the very inerrancy of scripture they tout to reach the conclusion it's 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 okay to say that the image of God in George and I is is less than the image of God in Paul and Todd. Yeah, you cannot engage in slavery without devaluing That's right. the, the individual. Uh, and, and then they'd also uh, had to take scriptures and pervert them to turn the, the ham, the curse of ham, which is never mentioned. Right. It was right. a curse of Canaan. So the okay, curse right. of ham was never mentioned. But based on that perverted view of scripture, they gave themselves a theological license, which in turn gave the secular society, the government of theological license to discriminate against people of color because here's the church saying the Bible ordains this. Right. And uh, Paul, Todd, George, uh, I don't know if there's any parallel or not, but this may be going way off the subject. But in Mississippi the other day, as soon as the state Southern Baptist of Mississippi says, we don't want the flag anymore, less than two weeks, the flag comes tumbling down. Black Baptists and Blacks peer been asking for that for years. Years, that's right. But the Southern Baptist Convention formed in 1845 would not let a woman be a, a messenger who could cast a vote right. until 1918. Yeah. So they, they, they could attend the convention, but they had no voice, no vote. In 1918, though, it was the women, really, Along with a governor, Eagle, uh, uh, Governor Arkansas's wife pushed the envelope on this voting, and they finally got approved for women to vote. And, and by the way, anybody who oppresses a woman's vote is a misogynist, in my point of view. Right. Uh, so I think it was 1920, it was led by Susan B. Anthony, but as soon as the church says a woman can be empowered to vote within our, our governmental context in the church, here comes society following. And again, so I watched it in real time. We watched it in real time in Mississippi. It's sometimes the church is the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And what we do, we set, we are the moral guardians of society. And all that took place, the Jim Crow laws, the police brutality, you know, Memphis, Tennessee, you pay black garbage workers one thing, you pay white garbage workers another uh, hourly wage solely based on color. Uh, that was a ceiling, you know, Todd and Paul could get government contracts to provide the city of Oklahoma with 
whatever. And George and I, we couldn't get those same contracts. As E.V. Hill said, don't you, in a track race, a, a four-lap track race, you can't get two laps ahead and then tell me to catch up. Oh, right. So yeah. that's kind of what America said to black people, Paul, when you're talking about some of your friends go, well, we thought we took care of that. We thought we said, well, I'm two laps behind. Because you had certain events. My mother used to teach in a Whitehall school district in Arkansas, right outside Pine Bluff. And Whitehall was named Whitehall for a reason. Because that's, <laughs> that's what it started out being. Like they had a white settlement near Fort Worth that was named that for a reason. But I think she had a four-year college degree accredited. She made $241 a month. This is going way back to the 60s. Uh, right up the road, and she taught in a little black pocket about 15 miles out of Whitehall, actually, but it was still in the Whitehall district. White teachers in Whitehall were making like 400, double her salary. So now she got nine kids, George, that she got to send to college, buy clothes, medicine, doctor care, on and on and on, provide transportation. Though she's working the same hours, same accredited college degree, with less money, right. and then white people want to look and want to know what's wrong now. She's she's two laps behind. That's what's wrong. Two laps behind. She, she didn't get the same salary your grandmama got or your mama got. It, it, it she was able to build up the same wealth to pass it on to her children in the same way uh, they were. So that that a lot of uh, misunderstanding and misinformation and lack of information when it comes to this whole racial peace that it seemed like God sovereignly chose to use George Floyd's right. death, a murder, what it was, to awaken yes. and remind America that she still, as Martin Luther King said, we read the Constitution, we came to claim, America's written us a blank check, a, blank a, check. a check that came back insufficient funds. And look like America are wanting to begin to make that check good. And slowly but surely and incrementally having discussions now. And thank God for progress was made. I'm not one of those that said nothing has happened. Things are as worse as they just as bad as they were 100 years ago. I'm not no, one of those people. No, no. But even though all the progress we've made, we, we are, we're still a long way from Black people being made whole from a right. legal systemic inclusion, uh, equity, parity, on and on and on. We're still a long way from having been made whole. I'll close with this section with this. Somebody said, well, why, why don't we have Blacks in prominent places in SBC? Not one Black entity here. Well, those people make $300,000 plus, uh, oversee budgets of $3 million to who knows what, $10, $20 million dollars. Uh, those people uh, oversee employees, uh, 20, 30, 40, 50 employees. I was at visiting the headquarters in Nashville 10 or 15 years ago. At that time, the, I asked to see the highest ranking black in this building. The vice president paused to think about it, and he took me to introduce me to the, what he, he introduced me to, what he said was the head janitor. Later, I was informed that was not, that guy wasn't the head janitor. That was the highest ranking black in the seven story uh, Southern Baptist Convention executive building at that time. And so somebody said, 
They had five entity heads open here within the last 18 months to two years. Blacks and Hispanics and Asians applied for all five entity heads open. Some of them with terminal degrees, experience, well-qualified people. And it would have been, I'm not saying all five positions should have been filled with a Black or Asian or Hispanic, but it's systemic injustice and racism. When you figure out a way to that every application, none of them made, some of them did get interviews, which is a change, but none of them were selected. You say, how could that be? That's an example of white privilege and, and systemic racism that's going on within the very Southern Baptist community. So now you, you've uh, several times brought me to tears, and, and that's good. I, 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 think, I think we need to hear that, and, and um, whoever happens on to this recording will need to hear that. But, but George, you, when you started out, you made the comment that this, this particular point in time has also given you a sense of hope. So let's turn the page and let's, let's hear from you and Dwight. What are some things about the moment that make you hopeful, even knowing that Evie Hill was right? We're still two laps behind. Help us, help us uh, get a glimpse of, of what you're seeing, what you two are seeing that, that this may, may give us some hope that we haven't had to this point. Well, now, I've been to your church and priest before, Todd, and you and I are really close friends, but this is the first time you and I have been on a Zoom call with uh, Pastor Dwight McKissick and your brother talking about an issue that has been in existence prior to George Floyd's demise. Yes. So this is the first time we've done this, and I just told you, and, and, and Dwight said the same thing, this is, not, this is not the first one that we've been on this week. This is not the first one I've been on today. So part of my hope lies in this thing is that we've got to keep these conversations going because you can you cannot get to someone's heart until you get at least at least getting them to understand the concepts that you're trying to lay out there to grab hold hold of it and so that works in christianity uh, Pastor McKissick, uh, passing for 30 years, didn't just leave me without any idea as to how to get to people and to touch them. Mm. And part of that is you, you've got to teach them. You've got to have the conversations. You know, all those times I spent in Sunday school as a child brought me to the point where I did. And I think part of my 30 years, you can talk about the education I got, but the the those, those moments in Sunday school every Sunday gave me something that I didn't really understand, but I liked the stories. I liked the, that God parted the Red Sea, and that was a powerful thing. Now, so I can use that to free folk. I, I didn't have to understand the concepts behind who that God was. I understood that event. And so that's the other thing. We've got to get folks to understand what we're talking about, why we're talking about it. And so my hope lies in first in this idea of we're having these conversations. Why said we're having them too. All of us are having these conversations. Paul, having them with your friends. This is wonderful. This is wonderful. But we cannot let it just rest in that. We've got to move it beyond that. And those are the next steps. But let me say three things and then I'll, I'll, I'll back out. First thing is I went to the, to the rally they had here in Oklahoma City with Black Lives Matter. 
And I don't care who put it on, but I'm glad they did. But I was there and something struck me as I was there with my mask on and I looked around in that crowd. And as I was looking, and I'm, I'm, taking, I'm taking a 360 degree view of this crowd. And one, it was a large crowd, which then I go back and look at TV, very large crowds all over all of major cities, minor cities in the United States of America, large crowds all over the world, large crowds with George Floyd's picture on uh, posters, large crowds, large crowds. So it's the number of folk who are involved. Just take, stop, don't think about it. The number of folk involved makes me hopeful that this has moved from just a black issue now to a worldwide issue and it's gaining the attention and that is wonderful. So I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful one about the conversation that we're having too, the size of the crowd. Second thing that struck me when I stood in that crowd in Oklahoma City and I looked at the crowds on TV, it was a diverse crowd. There were more white kids on in those groups than it was black kids. That's just a fact. You can count them if you want to. They can tell you that you can look at them and see. That struck me. And as I talked to some of those kids who that they read, and <clears throat> they had no idea what systematic racism was. They didn't, they, they, that concept was, was escaping them. They were talking about the human rights issue. They saw a man's life taken away from him <clears throat> because they believed it was because of his color. Then they were able to attach to that the things that we've been talking about now, the history of, of, of racism that existed. And, and now they can talk about it and see, and they're attaching that. Because these young people, it's, it's some, they, they get an issue and they want to know about it. And so that's what's happening. They're being educated now because a lot of that was, when, when Dwight and I was coming up, a lot of that was just not, we lived in it. We lived in it. And so now we're looking back and understanding what we lived in better because nobody was trying to teach us and we weren't trying to grab it because we were trying to make it. Now right. these young people are discovering information that it was bad. Slavery was bad. There was no good thing about slavery. The Civil War was not about states' rights. It was slavery. Slavery was horrendous. Slavery has, has dem just demonetized this country. So you get two, the diversity of the crowds. And then... Thirdly, what I'm really excited about is the age of the crowd. These are young kids. These are young people. And it is, and I'm thinking right now, yeah, all we got to do, me and Dwight, is keep telling the stories we tell and keep doing the things we do because these young people are putting legs to this thing this time in a different way. And, and you can say what you want. I'm dealing with some stuff here in Oklahoma City about some people who are arrested and bail bond is too high. But those young people are putting legs on this thing and they are willing to put themselves on the line. They are willing to march for this issue because they, they are not fighting for something for me. They are fighting for their own country, their own future, their own tomorrow. And I am so excited about that. that they, they appreciate what I've done, but you know, move out of the way, Joy. We got some stuff we need to get done. They are fighting for a new future. They see a new America. They see a new country that, that can include all folk. And so I, I, I'm very excited about it. I think that's where my hope lies now. I hope that Cause in fruition it may not happen in my lifetime, but I've seen enough for me to already to go to shout. I can shout now. I don't have to wait till it's over because I can see what is occurring, and I'm very excited. And it's touching the hearts and the lives of so many people. These young folk are bringing it into the attention. It's touching the lives of people in so so many ways. I'm excited. I'm excited about tomorrow. I'm excited about the future for this country. Why? What about you? Well, 
Amen is all I got to say to that. <laughs> so so be it. He said he summed it up. He said it all. I was I'm intrigued. I didn't know uh, Paul had an adopted black uh, son and and that's now an adult and, and he's out of the house, obviously. And the only reason I brought that up is he obviously everybody has to contribute to this conversation and it has to be a dialogue and not a monologue, but. Um, he put his money in heart where his mouth was. I'm sure maybe he didn't adopt a kid because he was black. He adopted a kid because he wanted to adopt and love the kid. But that to me is pretty significant. And it sort of dovetails into when you talk about hope and we talk about, you know, what's what's the way out of this? What's, right, right? We've come this far, but we all recognize we got two left to go or so and racial healing and being made whole, reconciliation, what have you. I have this, this, this belief, in part based on scripture, in part based on uh, just under, my understanding of life. Again, family, church, school, being the three basic character-building uh, institutions of society. And if any of the, if either one of those three are not operating at an op- optimum level, it tends to have a long-term adverse effect on the kid and as a result, society. And all three of those, family, church, and schools have been undergoing major challenge and demise uh, the past, what, 30 years or so at least. I think they were better, George, I could be wrong, in the 60s, I think families were strong in the 60s. Churches in many ways were strong in the 60s. And schools, uh, that whole movie, Hidden Figures, that was popular two or three years ago, yep. of those three um, Black ladies who helped yeah. the astronauts to get, right. I don't know if that was, but my brother Gene, who's several years older than I am, he's a practicing lawyer, Pine Bluff, he pointed out something that was significant. He said all three of those ladies were educated in segregated schools. And they're getting ready to name in Houston the Astronaut Center of Apollo, whatever it's called, uh, after one of those ladies. They, they're going to rename that whole facility after one of those ladies. And his point was, they those ladies got an optimum education. They, 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 they those ladies were ha- they learned in the school system. They were so great, they were able to do what they did. And of course, all of the great blacks of that era mainly got their education in the segregated system. But today, reportedly, school systems are not educating as a whole at that apex level. Families are dysfunctional a lot more so, in my judgment, and from my observation and and from my reading than they were in the 60s. And then churches, I agree with Tony Evans. Churches started this racial mess. We're going to have to fix it. We got to eat it. When 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 the church set up, you know, y'all, y'all black, we got y'all over there, we over here, y'all inferior. You know, we y- y'all get the secondhand class books. The Bible teaches that y'all are cursed by God. On and on and on. The church, I went to South African priest 25, 30 years ago, and Mandela was in prison, and the church had taught those people. They were accustomed to, theologically, they thought they were the last thing. It, it blew me away. I asked them, where did y'all learn that from? The Dutch Reformed Church. I mean, so they, 
they were trained to um, submit in an unhealthy ways to white people solely based on skin color. And where I'm going with that is, I'm of the belief that God never intended, it's not his idea, it's not his perfect will for the church ought to reflect the community. If the community is interracial, integrated, ideally the church ought to be. I don't think we'll see healthy families again until we see healthy churches. I don't think we'll see healthy schools until we see healthy families. I think it's powerful that you would adopt a black kid. And I think uh, my wife and I ought to be loving on all kids, but loving on Hispanic and white kids, we're probably not going to adopt at this age and stage. But with intentionality, I think we ought to be entering into each other's worlds. I think, you know, the trajectory of my church is culture is 99% African-American. Uh, that could change, but maybe it won't. But I could probably give up 50, 100 members and 50, fill the role, give up 50, 100 members. And they come up with a name and agree some on a core value statement and a doctrinal statement and a mission and purpose and vision, all that good stuff. And create a church that's maybe, you know, start out interracial. Maybe they have two leaders, you know, a young white man, a young black uh, man. And, um, and they, uh, the DNA of that church will be interracial. If you're in an interracial relationship or marriage, you don't have to pray for a miracle to have an interracial child. It's just a natural byproduct of that interracial couple coming together. <laughs> I would hope if a church starts out as an interracial church and they hammer out together, maybe worship this, kind of like Brooklyn Tabernacle, that worship is too white to be black, it's too black to be white, it's just, it's just Jesus. You can be in Brooklyn Tabernacle if you've been there in New York and it's one of the most grandest worship experiences you ever get. In. So create a church where the preaching is, everything about the church is interracial, where you address police brutality from a biblical, holistic point of view, maybe not just solely out of a sociological, secular philosophy or construct. And that would be true of abortion. That would be true of uh, healthy marriages and you name it. It would be a bibliocentric approach. Because if you take the, the Bible address all these issues, even the issues of housing and economic injustice. I would think if, if if we could get that going in America, and I'll close with this. I was so encouraged the other day. I got to follow up with a, a Asian guy I've never met. We're social media friends. Last name is Chang. He seemed to be a popular guy. DJ um, Chang? No, I'd have to look at my phone to get mm. his whole name. Mm. I didn't know he knew me, but he was complimenting. I, I complimented something he said. First time I ever responded to anything he said. And he said, coming from you, man, I'm really blessed, which told me he had either formed a positive opinion of me. I didn't even know he knew me. But what? But when he got back in touch with me on private, uh, direct message to say is, we're praying about putting together a denomination that's Asian. Uh, this he, he led the march. Uh, I heard uh, Brother George talk about the protest in Oklahoma City. This is an Asian guy who had hundreds and hundreds of Asians with blacks and whites 
George is right. The diversity of the crowds are unprecedented. Uh, and maybe the numbers of the crowd and the international nature of these protests, we have not seen this. That's why I believe God has breathed on it. It's sovereignty of God we're looking at. But I thought to myself, if this guy can pull off a denomination, he called it a denomination, not a fellowship of this interracial orthodox theology. America has never seen that before. Right. We don't, we don't even know what that feels like and looks like. And maybe out of that, we can plant interracial churches. I believe it won't happen tomorrow. It may be, I don't know how long it takes to get those two laps caught up, but I think we're going to see we're going to see people do what Paul did, not just whites interacting with blacks, but blacks interacting with whites. Right. Not see churches, blacks to sacrifice, either integrate their own the existing churches, but I think it'd be a lot easier to, to spin off and plant those churches. And we're going to see school systems. Those three areas are going to have to be totally revitalized. And of course, I'm not leaving out the corporate America, and that, that's, that's just not my expertise. But I think those building blocks, what made me not feel like I was disadvantaged was the home I grew up in, the education I got in all black schools up until the seventh grade. And the church, the healthy churches. Let me, I close with this. I grew up in what was called a silk stocking church, St. Paul Baptist Church, Pine Bluff. They didn't clap their hands. They didn't dance. They didn't raise their hands. They didn't shout. They barely would say, man. They had a pipe organ that a professor at the black college there, University of Arkansas, Pine Bluff, played the organ. It was where the the black upper upper middle class in the city attended that church. And uh, I remember when it was a real crisis in our church when the young choir wanted to clap their hands. And bring in drums and guitars. That set off a, a it's an all black church, but it set off a war within the church. And our pastor basically, he was good preacher, good man, good mar man, good preacher, but he pretty much took the stand uh, that he was not in the protest. Some, some people say he could out white white folk. Uh, he 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 told he said if you go protest you might get hit in the head with a blunt instrument, and you end. He said if, if they hit you in the head with a blunt instrument you can't think. So you can't think you're, you're no good to no one, not even yourself. And uh, he 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 preferred more of a high church style, European style church worship. So we so the church is debating that that's that's become a source of contention within the life of our church. But so happened one Sunday they invited the White First Baptist downtown to worship with us because actually our church grew out of, our church used to be a part in its early days, late 1800s, early 1900s, we worship in the balcony of the white church. But at some point they kicked us out or we wanted to leave and they formed the St. Paul Baptist Church. So, but on this day, First Baptist and St. Paul coming back together to just at least relive the fact we have a shared common history. And when the youth, youth choir of First Baptist say, they brought our drums, guitars, Clapped their head, and that, and we were like, and he didn't stop. We were going. Now you will not permit us to get <laughs> guitars, Hammond organs, and here come First Baptist, and a lot of them. Some of the kids had long hair, 
and they were their, their worship was more expressive. And I thought, my God! And guess what happened? Right after that, they they, they approved us being able to clap <laughs> our hands and have a job to get done. Oh, my point is, we're better together. We're better together. That's the point. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good, Paul. You got any uh, any anything come to mind? Yeah. Um, I think the the thing that I would kind of wrap up with is uh, to thank you guys for being willing to participate in a conversation like that, like this with guys like us. Um, I only know your experience from the stories that you tell, from the books that I've read. Uh, I've read James Cones of the Cross and the Lynching Tree, Howard Thurman, Jesus and the Dispossessed. Um, uh, Jesus and the Disinherited. Disinherited, disinherited, yes, yes, thank you. Uh, I'm trying to to read more and to learn more. And the things that I read, uh, you know, sometimes I get in some of these conversations with some of my other friends, and I want to choke them out. (laughs) And, And that's just as one who has heard the story or read the story, not someone who has lived the story. And I, I think if I were sitting where you sit, that I might be um, angry and resentful and unwilling to give someone like me the time of day. But I was, I, I was, I think a lot in the shower. And uh, I was thinking in the shower the other day that I have a lot to learn about what it means to reflect the heart of God in the world and to look like Jesus in the world from people like you who have been through what you have been through. And not just the stories of your grandparents and your parents, but your own stories. And to still have the kindness and the graciousness to sit down and say, it's worth having this conversation with you guys. Uh, I, I need to learn those qualities better than I know them now. Uh the qualities that you already possess. And I think that you have a lot to teach me and uh, a lot to teach a lot of us about what it means to reflect the heart of God and to, to walk the way of Jesus in our world. And so I appreciate it. Well, let me, let me uh, echo uh, uh, an air of gratitude and I stood in the back of the church that I pastored in Texas. I had been asked to fill in to coach the girls' basketball team. Uh, Long story, but um, the superintendent was a member of our church, and he said, hey, I know you don't have anything better to do. Uh, would you coach this girl's team? Um, the majority of our athletes were um, 
freshman girls, they were majority were black. There were two upperclassmen girls that played were white. And um, uh, we spent a lot of time together. I coached that team. We got drilled. I was a terrible coach. I love to play, but coaching is a whole other art. But by the time we ended the season, toward the end of the season, I had friends that I hadn't had when I started. And for a few Sundays, though they had the black church across the tracks, they walked all the way over to come to church with the coach. And there was a gentleman who, um, bless his heart, at the time, probably in his 70s. And he looked out the window. I was standing in a little bitty tiny foyer. And he looked out across there and he saw those girls coming to the church. And he said a word that's not appropriate. Then he said two more. And it led to a conversation with the deacons in the church where they needed to ask me what I was going to do about the black young ladies who were coming to my church. And so one sat in my chair in my office and they sat around the office and they said, you know, this might cause a little bit of a problem. I said, well, it has. And I said, I tell you what, and my Bible was sitting on the corner of my desk. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'm pretty reasonable. You pick that book up. You stay here as long as you need to. And when you can find a passage that tells me that there's anybody I can't open the door to in this church, I'll hang a sign out and, and put chapter and verse and tell them that they can't come. I never had another conversation after that. <laughs> never had another conversation. But it stays with me to this day. I played in the park pickup games with those with those young black athletes. I opened up the gym for them when we played up and down till I hurt my I hurt to this day as a result of all of that. But I made some friends, some young friends who gave me some hope. And um and I, I see in hindsight things I missed. Even as I thought maybe I was offering some good gesture. But I see some things that I missed. And you have this event, and George and I have had a conversation once before by phone, and and I've been trying to do my reading, and I've tried to recall my own history. But, but I agree, these are the things that have to happen. And I appreciate the time you've taken. And hopefully maybe Scott will get better, and we can get Scott on here, and, and we can do this again and continue finding ways together um, because there's still things that um, we miss. Yeah. And, and the whole point was is what are we missing? because I want to have the same kind of hope you two have because I can hear day in and day out an entirely different story because people don't have the benefit of the stories that you've shared and they 
keep trotting out the same thing. And, uh, and so hopefully you're right. Hopefully there's a bigger crowd, a more diverse crowd and a younger crowd and they can help us. But you two have helped us this evening and hopefully whoever benefits from what time we've shared together uh, will open up some great possibilities that God might really give us um, something we hope for. So I want to say thank you. Well, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. All right. I lost y'all's pictures for some reason, but oh. I'm honored and thankful to have been invited to re reconnect with you, Paul and Todd, and hopefully to gain a new friend. I've really fallen in love with uh, Pastor George. You told me he's a great guy, but wow, just listening to everything he said, I am deeply blessed by him. And I don't know, every three, four, five years, Lord, let me get to Oklahoma for some reason or another. And I will, uh, matter of fact, when a white pastor friend named John Wiley was just, just trying to dial me now from he pastors north of Oklahoma City. I can't remember the small town's name. Uh, but nevertheless, I would love to for the four of us uh, to have lunch or something. I like that Cattleman's restaurant in Oklahoma City. Wade Brothers <laughs> took me there years ago. And uh, I'll, I'll do the buying just to sit down with you guys. Uh, I'd love that. Yeah, definitely. Well, let me say thank you to everyone also. And uh, obviously, Todd, uh, I, I love you, man. You are, mm. you are my brother, Paul. I, I, I'm your brother, man. I, so yeah, there's nothing keep... I can say about that. And I would add, uh, Pastor McKissick, Pastor Dwight, listen. Yes. Man, I, I want Brother Todd to give me your contact information so that we can uh, keep in touch with each other because obviously uh, I resonated. Uh, the resonance between your story and my story uh, reminds me of home. And so I appreciate what you said and how you said it. And uh, so look forward to continuing our conversations. But thank you so much. Thank you. Please, please give it to him. I will. Paul. I'll, give it, oh, I'll, 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 I'll give it to him as soon as we're done. I'll, I'll text it to him. All right, then, my friend. Him. All right. Thank you, George. Love you, brother. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank, thank you. All. Thank you, Paul. All right. He's always want to thank you for listening to Path Theological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. You can find us at toddlittleton.net or paththeological.com. We, we have a back catalog. We are really working to, um, you know, get some other guests on. I've got some things in the work for later this summer. The, the COVID-19 thing has just really kind of altered the schedule and, and who's available and that sort of thing. But uh, you could help us out by sharing this podcast, uh, rate, review on iTunes. It helps us uh, continue to get found. If you have a suggestion for a guest, you have a question about this particular podcast, feel free to email me at doc.todd at gmail.com, or you can email me at, at uh, uh, Pathological. Uh, there's a link on the website. We'll have a, a post up uh, accompanying this podcast at toddlittleton.net. So uh, without further you know, further lengthening this podca- podcast, let me just say thank you and uh, look forward to engaging with you uh, wherever we are able to. Peace.